cheerful group out there. <laughs> it really wasn't. That's why I said that. People look really serious after praying. Um, we start a series of Advent lessons today. We're going to have three of them. And Paul Beecham's going to uh, teach today and on the 23rd. And Malone's going to teach on the 16th. And I can't wait for Paul to start today. I'm not going to do a big introduction. Everybody knows who Paul is. And if I let Sarah up here, she'd just say too much probably about it. <laughs> so, but that picture that was up there on the screen, I can't wait to hear what Paul has to say about that. Did you see that, how similar those two images were? So this will be real interesting. So anyway, here's Paul. <laughs> The, the lesson over the next couple of weeks is simply the greatest story ever told. It's a whole lot more than a great story. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. It's the story about who God is and what he's doing. This thing I just ran across. If God has done everything that we think he's done, he's got to be the super, he's got to have the super genius brain that's absolutely amazing, right? Absolutely beyond our comprehension. And would you have thought that he might have designed the brain, even of a mouse, to have the same basic kind of appearance as the structure of the universe? You reckon the two are related? You turn it up, you leave it there, okay. Alright. Uh, what I'd like to try to do uh, today and uh, coming back in two weeks is to just try to share a conversation with you about where I find myself having gone over the last couple of years in in thinking about Christmas and just putting Christmas together. This started two or three years ago. I got to thinking about the Advent. God became a man. Can you imagine such a thing? It's, it's really preposterous. Yet that's what we say we believe. And so I've been into that for a couple of years just thinking about that. And uh, in talking about today's lesson is about preparation and the lesson material, we'll talk about John the Baptist. And certainly John the Baptist was the herald. He was the guy that, if you will, announced Jesus and initiated his, his ministry by his baptism of Jesus. But the preparation for this story is how far back does that go? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to start talking about the preparation for Christmas? In the <clears throat> writing of Luke, um, he, he gives a prophecy that uh, is the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. We've not seen that part. There's some story yet here yet. So, we start thinking about, for me, to tell you how I think. Start thinking about the Christmas story. 
You've got to go all the way back to eternity. What is it that was in the mind of God that has led us to the Christ? What's God thinking? What's God doing? What is God about? What's it, what is his plan? That, that's a preparation. And, and what did he bring us? He brought us a tiny baby in a manger. And he did not become a leader, a political leader. He did not rescue the Jews away from the Romans. And yet the scripture says he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no way. We haven't heard the rest of the story yet, right? There's still more story in there. Now, where are we going to go to start? I'm just trying to put this story together. It's got to make sense to me if I'm going to live my life on the veracity of this story. We're going to make Christmas something more than, you know, the equivalent of Easter eggs. We've got to get down to an attempt to try. Let's see what God has said to us. Martin Luther said to us that where are we going to start? Number one, is it in the Scripture? If it's in the Scripture, but not in the Scripture, don't believe it. So the place that, uh, <coughs> that I, excuse me, the place I'm going to start today, I've got a whole bunch of scriptures, and that's what we're going to essentially do, is talk our way through the scripture. Uh, what's the earliest scriptural reference to a Messiah? And most folk think that it is Genesis 3.15. In that, we have the story of God questioning Adam and Eve about what they did and why they did it. And, of course, you remember the idea, well, the, the, the snake made to do it. And God is cursing both of them. They're not going to live in the garden anymore. They're going out where weeds grow. And uh, childbirth is going to be painful. And he says to the devil that um, he will crush your head, meaning the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you Satan will strike at his heel. So, we got early, early on in the scripture, we've got the idea that someone who is, has come from a woman is going to crush Satan. There's the, the, the indication of the power and the conclusion that God in the third chapter of Genesis has given us the final chapter. He's given us a hint at the final thing. And where I'd like to go from there in looking at, there, there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that prepare us. But here's one that I think is, is especially unique. And you find it in Numbers, the 23rd chapter, and it's the story of Balaam and his donkey. Balaam and Balaam. The children of Israel were right on the other side of the Jordan River waiting to come in and take over the land of Canaan. The people around them were scared to do it to death. And the king of Moab, a guy named Balaam, and you see all these guys have got B-A-A-L, the Canaanite god was Balaam. Balaam calls on a sorcerer by the name of Balaam to he sends messages over and says, look, come over here. 
These people are about to wipe us out. I need you to come over here and put a curse on them. Balaam sends them back. No, he said, <clears throat> I'm sorry. He's been warned. Uh, no, don't you, don't you pick any part in this. So they send some higher class emissaries over. And they say, look, we really need you to come. And God has spoken to this sorcerer, pagan prophet. And he said, if he would give me his palace filled with silver, no, I wouldn't come. Well, once God has gotten his attention, he says to this pagan prophet, you go, you go and go with him, but don't you do anything that I don't tell you to do. This is the story of Balaam's donkey on the way, uh, turned out of the path. Another place he brushed him up against the wall, and finally the donkey just laid down under him, and Balaam, you know, is kicking and striking his donkey, and the donkey talks to Balaam, you know, what you doing this to me for? I've been a good donkey, I've done you any harm, and God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees an angel with a sword. He, he knows he is in a scary place. He knows that what he's up about, this idea of an invitation to come curse the people of God, he better be careful. And so he goes with him. And you get him over there, and Balak takes him up on a high mountain, builds seven offers, offers a bull and a, uh, and a, a, a sheep or a ram on each one of them. And Balaam opens his mouth to start the curse and outflows a wonderful language. Uh, he does it, uh, he takes him, uh, what, what are you doing here, he says. And he takes him over to another place, uh, gives him another view of the, of the Israeli camp. Uh, and all, builds more altars. Uh, Balaam starts again, same thing. He starts, he starts blessing. Does it a third time. Finally, Balaam said, look, the only thing I can do is what God will allow me to do. Because he's scared to death to mess with God right here. Now, here is a blessing about the Messiah coming for, from a usually paid for pagan sorcerer. God's going to a pretty good extent to get us the story, don't you think? And Balaam says, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. If you come to the concert, we're going to sing, A star shall rise up out of Jacob, and a scepter out of Israel. Uh, Middleton. What a, uh, I can't, I can hardly sing, sing my way through that song anymore. Balaam says again, I see him, the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A star. Where do we see a star? Bethlehem. Where do you see a scepter? You can see this initially talks about David. But what does the scripture call Jesus? David's royal son. And that he's going to uh, sit on the throne of David forever. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the, of the city. Remember that part, Bill, in there? Crushed in pieces. What's this, what's this ruler going to do? He's going to overwhelm everything that humankind has come up with. 1 Corinthians 15, God is, in the ultimate thing, God is going to be all in all. 
We know the end of the book. God wins. But, and he wins in an enormous victory. God is going to be all in all. There's not going to be any end to, you know, to our history except the one that is predetermined by the God who spoke it into existence so many billion years ago. He's the same guy that's going to conclude it, and he's going to conclude it with the Messiah uh, in total control, and God wins. Moving on. When you get over then to the story that Luke, that Matthew and, and Luke tell, uh, here is again the star that's come up out of Jacob. And the wise men uh, say to uh, Herod, they didn't know who to go to, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. Can you imagine that? Now, we, there's all, there are all kinds of, of ideas about what the star was, right? But whatever that star was, it was enough to guide these three magi from far to the east, over. And as far as they were concerned, it was right on the top of Bethlehem. don't know how you would see a star like that, but that's how, the way these guys saw it. And after they had talked to Herod, of course, they, uh, he had sent them out, you know, on the mission. But you, you guys go find him for them, and then I'll take care of the business after that. And when they got there, they opened up their treasures, and they gave him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Now, what they didn't know, and what Joseph and Mary didn't know, is that an angel is going to be appearing to Joseph almost immediately after these guys are there. He's going to tell Joseph to get up in the middle of the night and get out of town. I see. God's Messiah comes along. He's a poor boy from Nowheresville, Galilee. He's in a, in a small place. He's born out in a stable. There's a stir around with some of the local yokels, but there's no, you know, super big announcement. We'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks. And then in come these guys and give him, uh, how much? You think maybe they might have left enough with the baby and with his parents that would get them through that sojourn in Egypt. Because they had to take off to save the baby's life and live in Egypt. You know, the Egyptian Coptic church can give you a route where uh, Joseph and Mary and the baby were. But here, here is, are the, is the money that's needed. Gold, incense, and myrrh. Here are the provisions that are needed. And God's Messiah is in a small town and then out of town in a hurry to save his life. And then he's in Egypt for a while. Then when he comes back, the son of the Herod that killed all of the children, once, you know, as soon as Jesus is out of town. And he's still in charge there in Judea. And so Jesus goes up to Nazareth, where he became 
a local boy preacher and a miracle worker, and he was on TV, you know, seven nights a week. What's God doing here? If we were God, you think we would have designed it like that? Ain't no way. We, we, we'd have had it. We'd have something very different. Thirty years being um, a man that's helping take care of his parents, learning a skill. There's no indication Jesus is some local hotshot up there, and he just hadn't hit it big yet. There's nothing at all that indicates that that's going on. And so, here is <clears throat> the indication in what happened in the life of Jesus that uh, the first introduction of Christ, God's Messiah, into the world is that of the suffering servant. Now, that's in the forecast, too. That's in the prophecy, too. Isaiah's got it in there. And, um, and, and, and so has Micah. In looking at the um, the prophecy in Matthew, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people uh, Israel. So here is the prophecy uh, of the ruler that's coming out. Yet this first introduction of Christ to the world is not that of a ruler. He did not relieve his people of the Romans. He did not reestablish his kingdom. And the net result of that was they rejected him. His own people rejected him. Uh, the first time he went back home to uh, Nazareth after his baptism, and, and the initiation of his uh, ministry, and he's been preaching in the area around Galilee, and here he comes home. You remember the reception he got there? He read the Mount of Isaiah, and he said, this scripture that I've just read is being fulfilled with you right now. I'm, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. You know what his local friends did? They took him out on the brow of the hill on the edge of town and attempted to throw him off, and he passed right through their midst walking away. So, we have introduced here, then, that the idea of what God is actually doing with his Messiah is not what people expected. They have not read carefully enough to see the suffering servant. And then we can talk next week, uh, two weeks from now, more about uh, the advent and the role of Jesus in that. Now, let me skip over then a little further in the in the New Testament and go to Hebrews, first chapter of Hebrews. And here's some more setting of the scene. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Yet, a certain group of people that should have recognized him, didn't recognize him at all. 
After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we want to know where the Messiah is now. He's seated in heaven now at the right hand of his father. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then further down, and about the son, he says, that God says in the prophecy, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So here is our Savior, who's come, lived among us, died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. John says that those who knew him had seen his glory. Yet we see that in the fulfillment that we have of everything we know about Christ, up through his death and resurrection and his ascension, it still hasn't told the whole story. We still have all of this prophecy about the ruler who's to come. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. And I'll skip through some others. Looking again in Hebrews, at the, sec- at the second chapter of Hebrews, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now we're talking about the extent of the rule that Christ is to have. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. So we're living in what's called the church age. We're now the body of Christ, and we're living in an age for the propagation of the gospel. Well, we, in as much as we should, we, if we had been in, in the 2,000 years ago, there would have been the advent, the coming of Christ into the world. We, as part of our preparation for what God has done, is doing, and will do, we need to still be in a preparatory study. An anticipation of what he's going to do. We do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I want to come back to that and deal with what Jesus has done for us in the suffering servant role, and do that next week, two weeks from now, we deal with the advent. In bringing many <clears throat> sons to glory, it was fitting, fitting that God did it the way he's doing it. Fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, yours and mine, perfect through suffering. And folk had a lot of trouble hearing that aspect of, of the Messiah. Really, really had difficulty in picking up on that part of the story. For both the one who makes men holy are right with God. And those who are made holy are of the same family. Aha. Here is, here is, here is a hint. At what God is doing and why he's doing it. He's now claiming us as his children. He's saying, 
that Jesus, the Messiah, and you and me are of the same family. So that what God is doing here, he certainly, you know, you could wonder if God, if you wanted to, if God has a pet dog, but that's not who he, who he wants us to be. God has, for his own purposes, and in his own way, and for a story that's, that's a long ways from being completed, God has claimed us and owned us, and we would have to say, created us to be his children. So here he is then, putting the Messiah through this period of suffering, and having the Messiah through his death do something for us that we needed doing. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers. In every way. And in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. And again, I'm not going to get through with this. And we'll, we'll, we'll deal some more on this aspect of the necessity of the work that Christ did in our behalf. It's all part of it's the, this is all part of, of preparation for understanding who he is when he comes the first time. It's part of my understanding of who it is that I am in relationship to him right now and who I need to be now. Then there's a tremendous story of what's to come in the future. Well, how far back does this story go? Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 1, 19, 18. It's not with perishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen to sign this job by God the Father before the creation of the world. Now, friends, we're, we're, in, we're, into some, we're into some deep theology. Why is it that you mean to tell me that God has determined that he will come into this physical universe and become one of us in order to save us from something that there was nobody out there to save at the time that God made his mind up? We're back now to trying to think God's thoughts after We're here to see that God's not playing catch-up with this idea of a Messiah. God's not looking at what Adam and Eve did and saying, Oh, fiddle dee. Why did they do a thing like that? Now what am I going to do? Well, nothing, nothing has happened in this. I don't think there's anything that's ever happened in all of the time 
is any surprise to God. Peter says, that a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. We've got preachers that are in a big hurry to get the second coming tomorrow. You reckon y'all think God's in a great big hurry? I'm going shopping. Man. You're going shopping? Malone right. <laughs> says he's relaxed about all this. And here's, and here's, the other, here's another point of what he said. Revelation 13. Who is it that's not going to be with Christ? Who is it that's going to fall for the Antichrist? All those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So what we see in what I see in this is that there's an unveiling story here, who God is, who God is, what he's like, what he's about, why he brings, why he creates a universe. Seems most likely that he created the whole thing to have a platform or stage on which to demonstrate to us and the angels and wherever it needs to be that God is being God. God is demonstrating his redeeming self to us in, in this thing in time. And we yet do not know where it's going. And you're not going to hear me preach any sermon on uh, what uh, I think about the second coming or, or any foolish statements like that. Except this. That God has put into effect a continuing, complex, developing story. We have the benefit of living at this time when we've got at least the, the sketch of, 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 the, of it uh, laid out for us in Scripture. Not all the details, but the sketch. Now I'm going to skip over to some application to you and me. So we're running out of time. Here's what Paul says about it in Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law. So there's an indication here that Paul sees that God has taken his revelation beyond the law of Moses and beyond the relationship he had with the children of Israel. Righteousness from God, apart from law, has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So we ought to understand our Christianity as that is the proper development of the law and the prophets. The, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Gee, that sounds like something that Martin Luther was talking about, doesn't it? To all who believe, there is no difference, no difference between Jew and Gentile now. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. Now, there's way too much to talk about that. But here's a little quick rundown on the heart of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. So there again, we see the first coming of our Messiah 
as a suffering servant, not a not a, a earthly ruler. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And Jesus is preaching in one place, John 6 or 8. They, they, he's telling them uh, um, about what he's bringing. And they said, what have we got to do? What is the work that we can do in order to get qualified for this gospel you're preaching? Jesus said, the work God requires is to believe on the one who sent. There's no work you can do. There's no work I can do. There, no, there is no qualification. There is nothing we can do to qualify or to merit what God has done for us. Is absolute, total free gift. Jesus is the free gift. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's the word. That's the work of the first time. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us, now for today, this ministry of reconciliation. That, I love the way the old King James said it, to wit, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. When's the last time you stopped Paul When we are saved, God not only is not counting against me all of what I've already done. He saved me from that which I ain't got around to doing yet. There's, to those of us that are saved, there is not come up from any error or any overt sin. Not counting men's sins against them. Paul says in another place, Blessed is a man to whom the Lord is not counting his sins against me. Gee, what a benefit. I can use it. And it's committed to us, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, the righteousness of God's Christ, this Messiah, the baby, the one who suffered and died and rose again. His righteousness is credited on my account. God, can you imagine Perfection, perfect righteousness that settles every problem between me and God is now on the ledger books, God's ledger book. On my behalf, I need it. I need it. It's got to be obvious to you that in the way my mind has rambled around I've found myself having to think, try to think it as far back as I can. 
What's God doing? How far back does this go? This idea that God's going to rescue Malone and me is an old, old, old idea. God is accomplishing in his creation and through his Christ just exactly what he intends to accomplish. And there's nothing going to throw him off the schedule. And there's nothing going to surprise him. God is God, and he's going to remain God, and he's going to accomplish his all of his uh, intentions. And we know that his intentions are loving, and they are for our sake, and that he has something very particularly special about you and me. We don't, you don't have to figure, we don't have to figure out why God did that for us. Was he, was he, I, I don't think God was lonesome back before he created Adam and Eve. You think that, that God was quite content with himself. But God's doing something, is he not? God's doing something. If this story that we've been told, if this story that God has preserved is legitimate, it is It's got veracity behind it. It is not only true, it's the absolute truth. If that's true, then God knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. He knows who we are. He knows how to get us to where we need to be. Thank God for the greatest thing that has ever happened. That God himself would come and be one of us. What an, what an extraordinary thing. It's almost unthinkable that God would have come into the world. What? If you and I were running the show, we'd have had God come in with about a hundred million angels, and he would have cleaned up, you know, Main Street, just like that. And, uh, you know, and, and be ruling the world right now, uh, out of Jerusalem. The whole shebang would have would have been finished in in one great big flash and show of God's uh, uh, enormous power. Maybe something almost like, you know, the creation when God said, let there be, and there was. But we don't, we're not privy to that. What we are privy to, privy to is an assurance that is as old as recorded time. That God is has been doing something and is doing something in our lives and in his world and wherever he's going to go in the future and whatever time it is, that this is God's doing and God is going to bring it to be in his own good time. And he has already given to you and to me all that we need to be able to have our relationship with him, our father-son, father-daughter relationship with him, and to save us through all eternity. Okay, we need to stop and pray for a moment, and Malone will rescue you all from me next week, but then you have to put up with me coming back one more time and talk more about the end. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, you have done something that is mind-blowing in this world. And we thank you that the good news has come down to us. We thank you that you have rescued us from who we are.
and have made us your children, and that you are indeed able to keep us and to bring us to to your place. Will you bless us in this time of celebration of, of Jesus our Christ? And will you uh, teach us uh, how to how to worship Jesus our Lord? Bless us together as a group of your children. Bless us in our study together, we pray. Amen.